On this episode of Inside Writing is Andrew McMillan, whose debut collection, Physical, was the first ever poverty collection to win the Guardian First Book Award in 2015. The collection won various awards, including the Somerset Morn Award in 2016. Andrew has also contributed to BBC Radio 3 and 4 and has written for The Independent and Guardian. He's also a tutor of creative writing at LGMU and he's now going to perform a piece called The Men Are Weeping in the Gym. The Men Are Weeping in the Gym The men are weeping in the gym, using the hand dryer to cover their sobs. Their hearts have grown too big for their chests. Their chests have grown too big for their shirts. They are dressed like kids who have forgotten their games kit. They are crying in the toilet, and because they have built themselves as statues, this must mean that God has entered them. They are wringing their faces like sweat towels in the sink. Their veins are about to burst their banks. They are flooding out of themselves onto the tiles. They have turned water into protein shakes. They have got too close to the mirrors. They have got too close to the glass, and now... They are laying in the broken pools of their own faces, the lines of them, at the decline press, the bicep curl, waiting, staring straight ahead, swearing that the wetness on their cheeks is perspiration, that the words they mutter as they lift are meaningless, that they feel nothing when the muscle tears itself from itself that they don't hear the thousands of tiny fracturings needed to build something stronger. Andrew, thanks for doing this today. Uh, what was your first experience with writing? Is it something you came to as a child, or did it come to you a bit later on? Yeah, so I think when I was a kid, um, I wrote for fun, like I think a lot of kids do, just kind of writing little horror stories to myself and kind of making little books and things like that. And then... I ran away from it for a long time. Um, there was a magazine called Young Writer, which isn't about anymore, but it used to publish work by kids from the age of seven to about 12. And they'd send you like a proper contract and things and you'd <laughs> sign it and you'd feel like a real proper writer. And I really remember loving doing that. And then, because my dad's a poet as well, I think when you're a certain age, when you're a teenager, anything that your parents do, whatever, even if it's the coolest thing in the world, it's just mortally embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be a politician. But when I was about 16, 17, I started properly reading poetry again, kind of seriously, and sort of came back to it. So it was, it was something that was around in my childhood, and I was just around poetry a lot because of kind of the family that I grew up in, um, and then kind of came back to it in my sort of later teenage years. Who were the first writers that had a real impact? On you at around that age? Um, so Tom Gunn was a massive one, um, who I started reading just after I came out, and really just now much more, I love him for the form, he's an incredibly formal poet, really tight poet, but then it was just like, oh wow, this sort of stuff can be written about. It was kind of like taking drugs, it was having these wonderful sexual experiences, and it was the first time that I'd seen a kind of life that I kind of yearned towards, reflected in poetry. And I read a lot of Philip Larkin as well, who I just thought was sublime. And so really, I read these kind of really traditional poets, but also Allen Ginsberg as yeah. well, and kind of like, I think if you read the beats at a certain age, <laughs> they're just kind of incredibly glamorous. Um, and so those as well, I think. What's your writing process like now? Does it vary from project to project, or...? Have you always got set things that you do? Yeah, like I'm kind of not one of these people that can sit down and try and write something kind of at a desk. And so it has to be, for me, much more organic in that I just carry a notebook around with me everywhere, like, um, you know, all writers do, and just write down a line that might come to me from somewhere, from anywhere. 
um, and then just play with that over a process oftentimes of weeks or months to try and build it into something else. And so for poetry, it happens very, very slowly for me. For other things, you know, like essays or for more kind of academic stuff, I sit down at my desk in my, in my study at home and kind of physically write it. But poetry to me, it comes very slowly. Um, and so I kind of have to build it almost line by line a lot of the time. Is poetry, you, obviously poetry is your main love, but have you dabbled in any other like novels or screenwriting or anything like that? I tried to write a novel and it was the worst thing. Um, <laughs> I just thought I want to really write a novel, mainly because I thought it'd be nice to have something in hardback. Novels are often hardback, right? So I thought I'll write a novel because I'll have a hardback book. Um, and I sat down and I got about 10,000 words into it and nothing happened. In ten thousand words, and I kind of, and I kind of thought, oh, that's not a really good novel. Something probably should happen, and I realised that I didn't really want it to. So I thought, oh, maybe I'm not a novelist. And then it turns out they're going to do a, they're going to do a Norwegian version of physical, and that's going to be hardback. So I feel like that it's been scrapped. So I kind of maybe don't need to write a novel now. So dreams come true, you know. Dreams come true. I'm fine. <laughs> How do you find writing the more academic sort of essays? I really enjoy writing. Um, kind of academic essays certainly is something that I still really enjoy. Um, the kind of more comment or kind of thought piece essays, I really like writing, but I struggle with it because I never, I think you have to have a real surety about the courage of your convictions or you have to really believe in what you're saying because there's going to be 90% of people that disagree with yeah. you and I think that's kind of fine and A, just don't read the comments, kind of if you <laughs> like if you do a thought piece of the Guardian or something, you just don't read what's underneath it. Um, but I feel much more nervous about doing stuff like that because I think it's much more exposing or you, you, you're aware that you've you've kind of got a, a voice that you're speaking to more people than, say, a poetry collection does. So it has to, I think, be much more measured, maybe. And, you, I, you know, I don't want to offend anyone. Yeah, yeah. Physical, your first public collection, couldn't have been better this year. Have you been finding the sort of success in the aftermath of that? It's been balmy, really. Um, <laughs> so it came out in July 2015, and for the first couple of months, it was really quiet. Because it always is with, like, you get a little bit of kind of pre-publication buzz, but not really around poetry. And then it goes quiet while people are kind of finding out about it or kind of reading it and then reviewing it. And so the first couple of months, it was really quiet. And I'd been, my big fear before it came out wasn't that people were going to hate it. I just thought, what if people ignore it? Because yeah. that happens to a lot of great poetry collections that they just don't get the kind of coverage they deserve. And I thought the thing that would really be sad is if I'd spent, you know, a lifetime's work on this and people just kind of shrug. Yeah. Um, and so it has been incredible. Like, um, the people that I've been able to meet, I'm now really good friends with, like Max Porter, who wrote Grief is a Thing with Feathers, because we kept well, a great it? book. Yeah. Um, and he made me a t-shirt, which is really lovely. He sent me that the other day. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm really good friends with Max now. And because we get turning up on these shortlists together um, a lot of the time. So the people that I've been able to meet has been really lovely. And it, it, it's a cliche, but it genuinely has been life-changing financially in terms of just kind of being suddenly being given lump sums of cash. <laughs> um, so I've been able to buy a house, um, which w wouldn't have kind of been a possibility before. But also just kind of in the pe more importantly, I think, in... The way that I think people now approach the work is different, or the kind of the kind of platform I feel now I now have to be able to say stuff that I think is important, or to be able to talk about stuff about the working class, about a, a type of poetry that I think is quite plain and unpretentious and sincere, and not ironic. I think because the kind of success that the book has had in that sense, um, it's allowed me more of a platform to kind of 
to speak out about that kind of thing. But also it's poetry and no one really reads poetry. So like in the grand scheme of things, nobody cares, which is also quite nice. Like that's quite grounding. I came home the other day, I'd done this thing. I'd had to go and chat to Alan Hollinghurst, the novelist, who was like one of my great heroes. And I was so excited. Um, and I sort of came home and was like gushing about it to my boyfriend. Um, and he said, well, you're not curing cancer, are you? So I was like, that's what I need. I need someone to keep me grounded. <laughs> Everyone needs someone like that. Yeah, it's probably following on from that. So, you know, second albums, second films, second books. Yeah. It's always seen as being more difficult. Does the success that that first book has had, does that put more pressure on you or expectation? Is it more difficult writing it? It's been a lot more difficult writing it because I think when I was writing the first one, I wasn't really thinking I'm writing a first book. I was just kind of writing poems and kind of thinking about stuff. And eventually there's just enough that you put together in a collection and an editor comes in and kind of works on it with you. Um, with the second one, it's the first time that I've kind of sat down with a, just with nothing and gone, right, what's next? And so for a long time I was floundering and trying to think of a theme. Physical ended up with a theme really just because of how well it was edited by Robin Robertson at Jonathan Cape and kind of and the stuff that I ended up wanting to write about. But it wasn't, I didn't sit down and think I'm going to write a book about masculinity and sexuality. It just kind of happened incidentally. So for a long time... I got stuck in this kind of cul-de-sac of going, like, what's the theme? And then I thought I'd write a sequence of poems about historical women for some reason, and, and they were terrible. Um, <laughs> so that didn't happen. And then so eventually kind of, you know, it's, I've just kind of finished the second manuscript. Um, and it has been a, it's been a difficult process, but also kind of just ended up being more about childhood. I'm thinking of it more as like a prequel to physical, kind of like, kind of looking at, people that are younger, kind of early adolescents and things like that. And also that, because it's a second book, a lot of weight of expectation and pressure gets put on first books. Yeah. And so I kind of know it's going to be quieter. Yeah. It'll, people will look at it because of some of the attention I think that the first one got, but it'll be quieter, it probably won't do as well. It's certainly, you know, there's, no, there's, very, there's not any prize or there's one just becoming for second collection. So in that sort of sense it kind of can't have that kind of trajectory that the first one had. And I'm kind of happy with that, um, that it'll be a quieter thing. Although I do think, hopefully, it'll be better yeah. than physical was in terms of the content of it. Has teaching influenced the way you write, positively or negatively? It's made me a much better writer, much better writer, because I think, and it did it very quickly, because I used to be quite flippant about my own stuff and kind of quite playful and quite kind of like, didn't necessarily take it that seriously and started teaching and suddenly thought, right, so if I'm sat in a classroom and we spend 20 minutes going, well, is that comma in the right place? Or is that quite the right word? Or actually that line just isn't working? Or fundamentally, this is what's wrong with this poem. So then I have to go home and interrogate my own stuff in exactly the same way. And I think so it's made me a much better writer because the kind of rigour with which we have to look at students' work kind of line by line, word by word, and really pull it apart and put it back together and try and make it something better... You then have to go home to your own stuff and think, well, am I being honest? Am I really looking at my own stuff with that level of rigour? And so it's made me, I do think, made me a much better writer and made me take it much more seriously than I was doing. Do you think Liverpool's a good place to be a writer or an artist? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I live in Manchester, so I kind of betrayed myself and went, <laughs> you know, um, went back to Manchester. When I lived here for a couple of years, a lot of the stuff that ended up in physical was happening to me. Um, I had a really, really dodgy flat, which one could only describe really as a crack den. Um, 
in on the outskirts of Liverpool when I first moved here and then was living in the um, just across from the Philharmonic in town for a bit. But you know, everything that's going on in Liverpool, it still has a very kind of it seems to me kind of counterculture kind of vibe going on in Liverpool where people want to be creative, people are creative and if the kind of money isn't there, they kind of do it off their own back. I mean, what Liverpool doesn't have yet that Manchester has is just so much more money being pumped into it. And so Manchester's kind of theatre scene or the kind of cultural scene in Manchester is just bigger because A, it's a bigger city, but also because for whatever reason, there's just been much more investment there. And I think that's what hopefully, you know, we're getting a new, Liverpool's getting a new Shakespeare kind of institute at some point, I think, isn't it, on the outskirts of Liverpool. And stuff like that, you know, will begin to kind of help. And one of our jobs, or I see it at university, is to take the money that we have here as an institution and kind of use it to put on events at the Blue Court or at the Tate or um, the Everyman or with the Unity and kind of, you know, trying to... What Liverpool does have is a plethora of really exciting venues that it's kind of nice to be able to work with and put stuff on at I think Just to follow up on that, you yeah. wrote an article for the Garden, uh, the Guardian regarding the cultural identity, the working class mm. and the importance of seeing it on the page how important do you think this is, especially with the, with the cuts to the arts the continuing cuts to the arts, the cuts to social care? It's incredibly vital that people see their own lives reflected in culture and it's difficult because people often say when you make that argument, well, nobody cares. That's just kind of arty-farty stuff. It's liberalism. It's not this. But actually, ingrained in all culture is a sense that literature is of really high importance, which is why even, say, at funerals and weddings, people who would never engage with poetry will often say, I want a poem read at my funeral, because we still see it somehow in, internally. There's some sort of high rhetoric of importance. And so if people see their lives, as worthy of being in a poem or worthy of being in a novel where they're not just kind of an incidental character their life is the main focus of it then I think that does have um, an incredible richness and also what I mean what that article that you mentioned was kind of I think really had at its heart was also this thing that what we need is a diversity in all senses of that word amongst the people who run culture, amongst the people that um, kind of decide who has access to it and things like that. Because, I mean, at the minute, you know, if you want to get into, say, publishing, one of the only real ways to do that would be to go and do unpaid work experience or a very kind of low-paid internship at a London publisher for which it helps to have kind of either affluent parents who could support you or somewhere to stay in London and then you kind of get took on that way. And that's not the only way to do it, but it's kind of one of the main ways and so you know how do we get young working class kids from speak or kind of young working class kids from Moss Side in Manchester into that kind of world and I think that's really vital because then you know if they're the people that are running the publishing houses they're going to then choose work which kind of you know excites them or speaks to their experience and then people will see their own experience reflected back to them and will feel part of feel much more part of a kind of fabric of society I think. And the culture that they're consuming. Yeah the culture they're consuming will be won't just be kind of stereotypes and won't just be kind of other people um, kind of plain working class people on TV and films and stuff that they'll actually be um, 
kind of the be able to see themselves. I mean, it's a very complicated thing because, um, say, like, you know, I wrote that article. I'm not working class anymore. I speak to it. Someone came up to me at a party the other week and said, I can tell by the way you speak, you've not had an easy life. <laughs> Which is a great thing to say. It's like, it's been all right, actually. We um, <laughs> what a great thing to say. Um, but I think one of the ways, and I was, I was thinking about this the other day, I think one of the ways that the working class voice is silenced is that working class people it's not just white working class it's kind of like working class to mean kind of people from all different backgrounds all different cultures kind of new immigrant communities and things like that that working class culture often doesn't have access to the media through which it could tell its own stories or express its own thoughts but then there's also a thing where the people that do say so like me or kind of columnists and people like that if we come out and say it if we come out and try and speak for the working class, they go, yeah, but you're middle class, so yeah. shut up. And yeah. so there's this double silencing whereby the working class is silenced because they don't have access to this kind of media and that privilege through which to speak. But the people that are trying to give that space or trying to speak for them are silenced as being kind of either class betrayers or too middle class and don't yeah. know what they're on about. And yeah. so there's this double silencing that happens where, you know, the, they, they just kind of double down on that idea that, you know, they've got nothing to say or they can't speak. And I think, you know, it, it, the, one of the things that motivated me writing that article was kind of looking at a lot of the coverage of Brexit and thinking, you know, I'm from Barnsley originally, which I think was either 60-something percent or maybe even 70% vote to leave. And it's not because people from Barnsley are inherently racist and xenophobic. It's because the left and the right for 35 years of not spoken to people. I don't think anyone even went and campaigned in Barnsley, kind of from either side of that debate. And um, and it's because they felt ignored and they felt a chance to kind of fight back against something and they did it in the wrong way. I mean, the tragedy is that Barnsley's been rebuilt in the last few years by European money. Yeah. But no one went and, went and made that case yeah, to yeah. Um, in places like that. In places like Liverpool, it's been entirely rebuilt by European money, actually one of the places that voted to remain. I think uh, the only constituency in Liverpool that didn't is where I'm from. Really? And that's not, again, as you've just said, it's not because the people are inherently racist. It's because, and you, you, know, you stand at the bus stops and they'll tell you why they voted out. And as you've just said, it's because they've been ignored. They've because been they've been ignored and they got a chance to kind of to kick back against something and they just kicked the wrong thing yeah. because it's because also you know it's easier to believe a narrative of them and us oh it's them rather than it actually being a kind of you know a, a systematic cultural annihilation yeah. of an entire kind of class of people you know and the devastating cuts to social care that this government have put in the devastating cuts to kind of services for the homeless for um kind of women's shelters yeah. for the welfare state that i austerity is an ideology not as a necessity that has been driven through and affects areas like you know the outskirts of liverpool like places like barnsley in a much much deeper way than it does affluent constituencies you know i got a tax cut out of the out of the kind of last conservative parliament which is disgraceful considering how much how many cuts are going on kind of the lowest yeah. 10 5 10 percent of earners in this country um and i just kind of don't see an end in sight really it seems to be to be an ideologically driven thing um and i mean also the other thing not to ramble on that i kind of mentioned in the article was this idea that working class was no it, 
the idea of being working class somehow when we were younger, I think, in kind of the 90s and even under Blairism, was meant to be this like transient thing. No one's meant to want to be working class. You're yeah. kind of, if you're born working class, then you like strove your best and you might become like lower middle class <laughs> and you might kind of like have a nice driveway and things like that. Or you might kind of eventually own your own home. Nobody was meant to be. No one's meant to want to stay working class. And so it became this really hollowed out identity because you're either kind of, either you got stuck there and you'd failed in that narrative or you were meant to kind of go through it and become kind of low middle class and then your kids were meant to kind of slowly climb that ladder. And so no one was meant to be proud to be working class anymore. So that identity got hollowed out. And that hollowing out, because nobody from the kind of middle left has really ever has come up with a coherent way of speaking to them in the last kind of 20 or 30 years, that void has been filled by the far right yeah. and by UKIP, who come in with kind of lies but sound biteable lies, or kind of, you know, BMP or the National Front or whoever it is that's the next incarnation of yeah. that kind of far right um, kind of voice come in and they fill that void that has kind of been ignored by, by I think, the centre-right and the centre-left yeah. in politics. I think uh, it's a question that always gets asked and it can be a bit of a cop-out, but do you think schools can do more with accessibility to, I mean, with all the cuts, it, it, you can't just blame them, but for example, poetry, the poetry that may be on the syllabus, do you think in certain schools or in certain areas they could aim it more accessible, there's a bit of a dirty way, but like, for example, they put John Cooper Clark on the syllabus. Now people are split over John Cooper Clark, but that's how I got into poetry at the start. And because you know, it almost rhymed like a John Cooper clap, <laughs> but like something like Kung Fu International, that's something I know. So I'm not trying to read. I don't get me wrong. You should be reading like Wordsworth as well, but to have them both together. I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of debates to be had around the way that schools teach poetry. Part a massive part of that, and it's not teachers' fault; it's the curriculum's fault. Yeah. But you know, a massive part of our struggle when we get first-year students in, is to tell them poetry is not necessarily what they've been told it were in schools, that it kind of can speak to all these different things. I mean, I do think that, you know, kids in Merseyside should be studying Adrian Henry and Brian Patton and Roger McGough, and I think kids in the North East should be looking at Barry McSweeney, and I think that there should be a sense in which... Um, they're allowed to see their own area kind of represented because what it does, I think it's great to have aspiration. I think aspiration as in terms of kind of reading the greats is fantastic. And that's how I kind of got into poetry, um, you know, reading Larkin and Tom Gunn and things. But I also think there's a lot to be said for seeing your own life reflected back at you in culture, reflected back at you in poetry, reflected back at you in art, in great art. And so I do think there is something to be said for kids wherever they're from, being able to see their own lives as worthy of being in poetry are worthy of being in yeah. kind of art, you know, as as a Ken Lo as studying a Ken Loach film instead of studying kind of whatever it is a Hollywood film. Yeah. The idea yeah. that, you know, they might see their own lives um kind of reflected back at them. And that it doesn't have to be that instead of something else. It's putting it on a par. So saying, well actually it's just as valuable for you to study the kind of Mersey sound and the emergence of that anthology in the 60s as it is to study Wordsworth, because they're writing, you know, they're both radical for their time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so a sense in which, you know, it's not saying one or the other, it's kind of putting them on a, a kind of level playing field. But, you know, equality and kind of um, access to education um, is how we'd solve 90% of the problems in this country, isn't it? You know, you could solve... Um, 
the widening income gap, I think you could solve a lot of radicalization, be it by the far right or kind of whoever it is, by having equal and fair access to education, which, you know, we know for a fact we don't have, which the, which now seems to me, if we go back to grammar schools, there'll be much less of. Yes. Um, but, you know, a kind of aspirational idea that higher education, certainly, but, you know, Oxbridge and places like that are accessible to kids wherever you come from. I remember, I, you know, I went to this secondary school in Barnsley where the teachers were great, but the school was incredibly rough. Yeah. Like, it was just... A, a rough school and I kind of didn't have a great time there but I met some people and we got on it was fine um but I remember like a bunch of us who had been highlighted as gifted and talented I'm using kind of scare quotes um <laughs> kind of got just like bussed down to Oxford for like two days and kind of walked around and it was this idea of you know you could one day come here but it still felt very remote it still yeah. felt kind of very separate um and you know I was lucky that I came from kind of a family that really valued literature literacy really valued books and you know kind of I wasn't going to be the first one in my family to go to university that was just kind of a thing that was expected of us to do and a lot of kids where I'm from didn't have that yeah. and a lot of kids you know weren't given that aspiration and so you know part of our part of the battle for us or part of our generation's thing has got to be how do we widen access in all parts of society I'm not expressing that very well no, I completely agree, though. It's the only way that, as you say, 90% of the problems are going to be solved. If you could have a drink with one writer, dead or alive, who would it be and why? That's a good question. <laughs> I go for a drink with Tom Gunn, who I just, I'm in love with him slightly. He died just before I started reading him. He died in, I think it was 2002. No, 2004, he died. Um, but no, I'd go for a drink and like a party with him. It was still like party. <laughs> into his 70s like in these San Francisco bars and always wearing leather jackets and things so I think I'd have gone for like a um a night on the town with him. <laughs> Andrew thanks very much for that